Hi, everyone. Since recording this episode, we found out some new information about people infected at the RSA Security Conference. Not only were some people infected either at the conference or traveling to and from the conference, but we have since heard that one person passed away as a result of the coronavirus contracted very likely in relationship to the conference. This changes how we think about this. So we're not going to go ahead and edit the episode, but understand that the circumstances have changed dramatically even in the few days since we made this first recording. Welcome to the Cloud Security Mindset Podcast, where we explore how interesting security professionals think to learn how they succeed, handle failure, and respond to the disruptive forces facing security today. Hi, this is Mike Rothman, and we have a special edition of the Cloud Security Mindset podcast today. Uh, actually, we weren't thinking about doing a, a podcast. Uh, we had a couple things scheduled, uh, but you know, with the pandemic, obviously coronavirus and, and COVID-19 uh, really dominating all of the uh, you know, news cycles, uh, justifiably so, right? I mean, it's the first time many of us, unless you were around in you know 1957 or 1918, uh, ever really dealt with a pandemic kind of at this stage. So uh, what we really wanted to do today was uh, provide a, a little bit of a forum for Rich to go through one, a, a bit of his background, because uh, many of you just know him as kind of that security guy who talks about cloud all the time. Uh, but those of us who have known him for, for decades, uh, you know, kind of appreciate his background in medical services and the fact that he is an emergency responder and has been deployed uh, in the past to uh, really help with, with uh, most lately the uh, Puerto Rican hurricane, but you know, Hurricane Katrina uh, before then. Uh, so we thought it would actually be kind of an interesting time to uh, go through and, and, and really kind of get into it with Rich uh, about how his mindset uh, really kind of both digested and factored in uh, a lot of the news that was emerging about COVID-19 uh, and obviously facing what is, uh, at least what we believe to be, uh, an inevitable deployment to help out probably in, in early April. Uh, what are some of the things that, that he's considering both from a business continuity standpoint, obviously something that I am uh, extremely uh, interested in, in hearing about, uh, but also from a family planning standpoint. You know, Rich has a, a wife and young kids and a house and, and a mortgage and bills uh, and all of these things. So we really wanted to dig in today to, you know, kind of the thought process for how you prepare for something like this. So, so not necessarily uh, specifically around cloud security, but very much associated with the mindset of dealing with uh, a pandemic, a disaster. And, and again, I believe that there'll be tips that you'll be able to uh, take from this conversation uh, that you'll be able to use in your day-to-day -day, uh, cloud security job. So so with that, hello, Rich. I wish we were talking uh, on better circumstances uh, as we're both kind of trapped in our house uh, at this point, but uh, I am excited to really hear uh, a lot about what you have to say relative to, uh, again, just your background in uh, emergency medicine and, and how you're handling uh, the thoughts uh, relative to uh, COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely one that we did. How do I word this? We did, but we didn't expect. It's the kind of thing that I've spent 20 years training for and hope never to have to use. And now we're there. And it's kind of that time. That's right. So, so why don't you kind of walk us through your background a little bit? Because as I mentioned before, uh, everybody knows you as, as kind of the cloud security guy and, and your accomplishments there are, are well known. Uh, not many people do know you as emergency responder guy. Well, they might, because I think I talk about it more than most people talk about CrossFit, which says a lot. But yeah, uh, so my background, I'll do the real short version. I was a lifeguard at the age of 16. I became an EMT when I was 19 uh, at college, got dumped by a girl, took an EMT class to blow some time, and then became uh, went to paramedic school after that, uh, About eh, probably about a year and a half, two years after that. Uh, paramedic school being the most intense experience of my life of pretty much anything. It was a six-month intensive program, uh, probably 40 to 80 hours a week, closer to 80 most of the time. Things like working 72-hour shifts where I'm you know, treating critical patients. Uh, and uh, went from there, worked a few years as a medic. And then I actually went back to school. So I, I dropped my medic. I went back and became an EMT again. So that's kind of like going from a 
high level DFIR responder to going back onto the help desk and uh, did some work with mountain rescue and ski patrol. And after 9-11, I got involved with a federal disaster response team. So I'm not authorized to speak on that. Well, I'll just say it. So I'm uh, part of a disaster medical assistance team, which is part of the National Disaster Medicine System, which is under Health and Human Services. And the agency has moved around a lot, but I've been active on that team. And that's why I get kind of called up. So we are we have the same job protections as the National Guard and we're all medical professionals or logistics, uh, security, safety, any of the positions you might imagine that are needed to support a response. Uh, with that, I did go to Katrina. I've done a lot of training exercises and my team was specially designated for WMD response. Now that mission was taken away from us a while ago, but for you know probably the first 10 years I was on the team, uh, we received special training in chemical, biological, and uh, radiological warfare. Uh, we had special equipment, uh, mass decontamination. We were trained for, uh, you know, let's just say human-caused pandemics as opposed to, uh, you know, just what we're experiencing now, which is more of a natural uh, kind of a pandemic. I think the short version is, is I've been living and breathing this as kind of my side hobby for a couple of decades at this point. Yeah, I would call it as much a passion as anything else. I mean, you know, that was one of the things that, yeah, I guess it was, what, seven, eight years ago when you decided to get uh, recertified uh, for your uh, uh, paramedic and then, you know, kind of to go through that process and, and kind of explain to us what was really involved in that. Um, you know, clearly it wasn't something, especially with three young kids, right? You know, it wasn't something that if you weren't passionate about it, uh, you don't take the time to, you know, basically take a week offline and, and get recertified. Yeah, and it was more than a week. So it took me, my initial paramedic training was six months, which was a, a six-month intensive. Normally, it's about a year. And to be a paramedic, you have to be an EMT and have experience to begin with. My going back to it was I'd been thinking about it for a while. And, and believe it or not, Mike, it was only two years ago Is that, uh, right? that I went back and redid it. Forever. <laughs> uh, I was down in uh, Puerto Rico, and I was actually working in a critical care environment uh, in tents. So we were... Uh, a portable EC or sorry, we were a temporary ICU in a parking lot of a hospital. And they, because of my experience, I was working back up at the paramedic level as best I could under direct supervision of nurses and doctors. So not independent. I said, look, this is the best clinical I could have ever have asked for. So I went back and I had to study a lot. I had to learn a lot of new things and spent a solid six months preparing, did a a week refresher class, but that's just kind of part of it. And the rest was a lot of my own learning and watching YouTube videos and studying books. And then I had to, uh, to get my paramedic again, you're allowed to do a reentry by taking a refresher, getting a handful of other certifications that all paramedics have to have, uh, advanced cardiac life support and pediatric advanced life support, things like that. And then I went and took a, uh, uh sorry, after the refresher class, I had to retake the national exams. So both the written and the the practical exam. And the cool thing, and I'll just give one takeaway before we get into the meat of this, was I was nervous because I, I had run calls. I'd been active in EMS, uh, ski patrol and mountain rescue and, and things like that for a while, uh, as well as my disaster work. And I'm like, do I still know how to run a call as a paramedic? And I went in and do some practice with some paramedic students. I was like, oh, yeah, I got this. I, I it, it just reinforced how there's certain amount of years of experience kind of imbue into your head and change how you think about things, which is, uh, I think, a lot of what we're going to talk about. And none of that had left me. Uh, maybe some of the drug dose calculations and protocols had changed and, and things along those lines. But how to actually respond in a situation was the, the part that I think is the most important thing for an emergency responder and was the one thing that I had kind of held on to. Uh, that's right. And 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 that's actually a, a good segue to really kind of start the discussion around kind of your first impressions when we started hearing about, you know, this kind of thing happening in, in Wuhan and, you know, a bunch of people dying and then, you know, kind of the eventual, you know, kind of quarantine. Uh, and obviously, you know, kind of in our Slack room, we were all kind of like, well, what does this mean? And, and you know, Rich, what, you know, because we go to Rich as kind of the authority on on those kind of things. Um, so w when you first started getting, you know, kind of the dribbles of, you know, both the news from, from the mainstream press, but also, you know, some of the chatter uh, in the community groups that, that you're in uh, with your uh, response teams. Um, wh what did you first start thinking about? You know, it. we have been expecting this for a while. 
Uh, SARS was big. Uh, and then MERS, which uh, had a high fatality rate, but didn't really break out the way that we had been worried. And both of those were coronaviruses. So the current coronavirus is actually, it is SARS. It's SARS-CoV-2 or something along right. those lines. That's right. And I always look for key indicators. And the thing is, is because of my background on the disaster response side, I, I guess is a little more in my head than even, you know, kind of the average medic uh, or ER doc, because we get training on the national strategic stockpile. I'm trained to do max va- uh, um, mass vaccinations. I'm trained to be the ones in the tents and in the personal protective equipment. We're trained up on all this, you know, extra level hazmat level kinds of things. And the key indicator was, okay, there's another one in China. It's another coronavirus that starts in the usual places. What's the growth rates? And you start looking for a couple of key things. And one is how infectious is it? And what is the mortality? And it looked pretty early that this was bad. I mean, for everything in China, they're not known for over-responding to these kinds of health crises because they have them. They're, you know, it's a very large country with very dense amount of people. And so I think it was back in December, I started getting inklings that, okay, this is headed in the direction that if it breaks out, it's going to be bad. We just don't know how bad. And there was no certainty if it was going to break out. So that was that, that initial threshold. What's going on in China? And as the real information started coming out, we realized that, you know, this was more than they did for SARS. And then the real things that, that started becoming concerning. So the key pieces that led to where we are today, and which is why I'm still super concerned a lot of people aren't taking this seriously enough, is with SARS, we lucked out because fever was a very early onset. So you probably weren't infectious for very long before you showed a fever, and that's easy to screen for. It's, I mean, they have cameras, heat cameras set up in airports to detect those kinds of things. Those were put in place with the first SARS. Uh, With H1N1, similar kind of a thing. But with this disease, we we're realizing that people might be carrying symptoms for a week or two and be infectious without any noticeable external symptoms. And that rings a lot of alarm bells very quickly because as we're seeing now, that allows it to spread before people realize how bad the problem is. And it's a really hard part of human psychology to deal with that kind of a situation. So again, it was, I feel great. So why are you telling me to panic? Yeah, exactly. And I see that now. I mean, God, I'll I'll go into some specific examples. Like people like you shouldn't close down the, you know, the bar where we're having our, our, um, St. Patty's day celebration, because you know, it's a tradition and forget it. If you, if you're worried, don't go. And it just doesn't. And I feel great. Yep. And not caring about community spread and what the vulnerable populations are. And, And we didn't know that early. So that was the first alarm bells where, okay, there's another one in China uh, coming out of, uh, of that area, and it could get worse, and that was around December. The other alarm bells that started ringing was we weren't doing what we are supposed to do when we detect that. We being? The United States, okay. the rest of the world. In, in what way? We have playbooks. We have early monitoring, or we did. Some of that, I'm not, I really don't want to get into politics, but... Uh, you know, you and I talk about politics all the time, but the listeners don't care. But, but the people who are in charge of these things mostly were, I mean, some of them were, their offices were taken away. Those capabilities were taken away. And we should have been more closely monitoring the border. We should have been preparing our testing regimes. We, there's all this preparation and planning. And uh, the key thing in a situation like this is contact tracing. So you test, you find the infected people, you do contact tracing, you quarantine. If you have a vaccination, you do what's known as ring vaccinations, which is where you start vaccinating circles of people around the affected so that you kind of insulate the herd as best you can. And it did not appear like any of that at all was occurring in the U.S., which meant it was inevitable that it was going to hit here. And when it did hit here, that it was going to be able to spread pretty rapidly. Right. So even though... We had seen it go from China to a handful of other 
Asian countries, eventually to Europe, you know, you still weren't perceiving that the right kind of preparations were happening. So where do you go next, right? So you start saying, all right, this is probably going to get pretty ugly based upon what it is that I know, and more importantly, what it is that I don't see happening. So where do you start going there, right? You know, kind of, is it a matter of preparation? Is it, you know, kind of, okay, I got to start looking at my calendar because odds are I'm going to be deployed at some point. You know, what was your kind of logical thought process at that point, or maybe illogical thought process, depending on <laughs> to what degree emotion, you know, starts to, to play into it? Yeah, so the the first thing is it's just really starting to overconsume the news to the point of where it's probably been obsessive. I mean, it has affected my day-to-day work, my productivity, uh, as I, I kind of track those things. Then it was making personal decisions in large part around travel. And the big one there was RSA was coming up. Do we go? Do we not go? So what I was looking for at that point in time, so the first key indicators were, do we have a potential epidemic, pandemic agent developing someplace in the world? That trigger gets pulled. That got pulled when we started getting word out of Wuhan. Okay. The next is, what's the severity of that? We didn't really know, but it was looking, you know, pretty bad. And was it going to come over here? And then what were the potential timelines? And then I move into personal preparation mode uh, after that. So the first thing is, is because I do have a family, I need to make sure that we are prepared here at home. And I always have some level of disaster supplies in the house. And we can we can talk about what those are. The I have some inherent advantages. And believe it or not, it's not that I'm a trained disaster responder. It's because we go camping as a family, like family camping supplies is it's like being a prepper, but you buy your stuff at REI instead of in camouflage because you can. Yeah, because I can. (laughs) I like the REI gear better. So I always have a baseline level of gear. and, And I think we should talk about what some of that is. And I wasn't worried about that. But then the question is, is what's the, the societal impact? So travel is one big part of that. And, you know, I debated, do we, do we go to RSA? And in our case, I felt it was okay still having RSA because we had not really broken out here in the U.S. And even now we're weeks out. We only know of two cases and we haven't seen any, you know, material spread beyond that. Uh, and it's terrible. One of those people is on a ventilator, but that was probably travel related. Uh, I did start taking more precautions when I was traveling in terms of hand washing and, and those kinds of things as well as we were in private meetings. But it was, I mean, Rich, it was, you know, I wouldn't say controversial, but I mean, listen, you heard about the the Snickers and the, you know, what's IBM doing? And then AT&T and Verizon, you know, they're, they're pulling out who knows how many millions of dollars, you know, that cost them to, to not show up. Um, did they know something we didn't know? I mean, obviously we decided to, to personally go based upon, you know, kind of what we saw there. Um, and honestly, I didn't really take it that seriously at the point I was, you know, kind of shaking hands with folks and, and giving hugs to my friends and, um, you know, didn't, didn't really understand the, the depth of it, uh, at that point. Yeah. I mean, I think it was reasonable for them to pull the triggers they did. I also think that it was also reasonable for other companies not to, because of how early it was and the precautions the conference was taking, it was on the line. I mean, it was, I, um, in retrospect, I can still go either way with should RSA have occurred or not. Uh, In my head, it was, I felt okay with it, but I knew that there was some level of risk. Uh, In particular, though, we personally had some defenses. I never once was on the show floor. We were in private meeting rooms outside of the, the main conference area. Uh, the conference, you know, it, it's a different circumstances than being at a booth all day and shaking hands of a billion unknown. But we also didn't know the full extent of the disease. Uh, IBM and them partially, so they always know more. There are private intelligence services that larger companies like that likely subscribe to. I don't know if IBM did or not. Uh, health monitoring is a big deal. They've got to deal with all these global things. I've done some global disaster planning previously with like a a large global utilities company, they have resources that we don't, and they have access to things we don't. By the same token, it was also a, 
if you had operations in those other countries, it made sense to pull those triggers more quickly, in particular, if you have large Asian operations. And that's why, you know, large percentages of those people didn't come over. So I think it was reasonable and it was okay. And, you know, in my head, my, I, I mean, I thought about it uh, and I made the decision that it was a, a manageable risk at that time uh, for that time period. And I feel okay with that decision because I'm not sick and we haven't seen widespread sickness, but I absolutely wouldn't criticize somebody who is more conservative. Right. So let, let's kind of get back into, into the whole prepping thing. Yeah. So, you know, it's here what do we need to have in the house, right? You know, first let's talk a little bit about, you know, kind of quarantining, self-quarantining, you know, do you go out? Do you let your kids play with their friends? Do you, because again, I think these are, you know, relevant folks. And again, my kids are in high school, so it's a little bit of a different, you know, situation and, and a freshman in college, uh, your kids are, you know, a bit younger. Uh, but, you, you know, what are the general guidelines? And we hear what the CDC says, but, you, you know, kind of based upon your experience, is, is that, you know, kind of where folks should be going uh, or not going as it may be? Yeah. And to me, it's always key indicators and that's everything. You keep hearing me use that word as I go through this. What are the, or triggers is the other one. There's a series of steps that are more progressive and it's when do I pull those triggers and what are the key indicators for pulling those various triggers? So the first trigger pull was, you know, kind of back in that December timeframe when we started hitting, uh, more information was coming out of Wuhan and that trigger was pay attention. It wasn't any more than that. I didn't do any additional prep. I always have kind of my standard prep stuff. Uh, number two is when it starts actually coming into the U.S. and starting to break out. And that really just started to hit right around RSA. That's when I pulled my preparation trigger. And so I break it down into phases. There's number one is the baseline I always have, which is specific to me and my family with our risk model. So think of it as threat modeling. And I live in Phoenix, Arizona. So what are the kinds of disasters that I might face? And those are obviously a pandemic and biological. And uh, we had actually previously done some prep work because when H1N1 hit, I don't know if people remember the swine flu, that selectively targeted, had higher mortality rates for children. And I had super young kids. I had two of, I think one, two of my young kids and or my third child wasn't born yet. So we were very aggressive in our prep for that and running around for vaccinations. Uh, number two for my area would be like a large fire, but I'm in the middle of Phoenix in an area. It'd be really hard, but maybe something could happen. Uh, and so we can, that's more of a bug out plan with fires. You just, you get the hell out. You don't, you don't play around with those and you have escape routes that you think about and you have places for the family to meet back up. And so we have kind of a rough, range of of those for the family from meeting down at the park with the kids if something happens in the house to meeting at any of my in-laws houses to we run up to Flagstaff uh, if we can get up there is our like Phoenix has gone bad. Number three would be power outages and flooding would also be another one that would be on that list uh, although we're not in a deep flood zone and so for each of those I have different preparations. For most of that the fact that we go family camping, covers a lot of it. Well, then what about food? I bought uh, 15, 12 years ago, I think, or 10, 12 years ago, I bought these two buckets of like 30-day supplies from Costco. And they last over 20 years. They take up no space. It's not even a prepper level thing. It'd be terrible if we had to eat that stuff. I never want to touch it. But I bought two of those. I threw it in the back of the closet. Haven't thought about it since. That is like the absolute worst case I would need to pull Yummy. it out. Yeah. Ugh. I don't even want to know what's in there. Like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure it doesn't look like the pictures on the front of the, of the tub. <laughs> so we've got some of those. Uh, around H1N1, we put some additional supplies in for more biological. Uh, some of it's expired. We had Pediasure. But we had hand sanitizer, soap. Uh, believe it or not, uh, I found a roll of toilet paper in there. I just pulled it out to see what was in there. Uh, N95 mask. And so those are the critical things there. And then I always have ridiculous amounts of first aid supplies. Like I have my own bag valve mask and ET tube and, you know, most of it is not full. I don't have the drugs that I carry as a paramedic, but I have a lot of the other stuff. So that's one of those unfair advantages. And so as we got closer in, as I started pulling more triggers, one trigger was 
let's see what we have and make sure we're in good shape. And so we checked and we, we started ordering some extra stuff. We actually had, weren't subscribe and save for toilet paper on Amazon. And like, usually we have like five times the amount of toilet paper we need. So didn't have to do anything there, but I got back from RSA. I went to Costco a day later and it wasn't to stockpile. I was not hoarding. I was deliberately spreading the curve because my assumption was supply chains would be hit. My assumption was there would be a run when things got worse and all the indicators were there based on the nature of the virus, how it runs slow, uh, how it seemed to have very high mortality rates, how it seemed to have a very high infectious rate. To me, that was the, okay. And my thinking at that time was, and my wife and I had the conversation, we're not going to buy much more than we would normally go through halfway through the summer, like snacks and mac and cheese and some pastas. Like I didn't buy anything. It was like 50% more than a regular Costco run. That was it. So that was that first line of the, I'm going to get the stuff I think might disappear later just to be safe. Then as we went closer in and we were down the pandemic pathway, we started thinking more about other things. So I got uh, some extra ibuprofen. Uh, we I didn't know the nature of the pandemic. I actually got Flonase, the nasal decongestant. It's not decongestant, but it's a steroid for your nose because if it was congestion-related and we now know it isn't, that can be really helpful in reducing the symptoms. And didn't really get much else. Uh, I already had plenty of gloves. I did not get masks. Uh, that's the one thing I do regret. I had fewer masks in storage than I thought. I did. So I, I do wish I had some extra mask. Uh, and that was that, that piece of that preparedness. And then I kept monitoring the news and I kept listening through, you know, emergency services and, you know, Reddit even, and my friends and, and others. And we started getting a little bit more food. Like it was clear containment wasn't working. So, and things were going to spread and the government wasn't taking it seriously. So this involved more grocery runs and more Costco runs. So we went from just having a spare little pile of Gatorade and snacks and a few staples to let's get the pasta, let's get the pasta sauce, you know, and let's just get double of everything we would normally have. Soups, canned goods, I mean, all of that. Yeah, and then slowly filling it up. So the goal, again, for us was spread it out. Like, I don't want to be the hoarder that's taking things away from others. But if I start earlier and buy on a slower basis and just get a little bit more every time, you get stocked up very quickly at not much more. You know, maybe I spent twice as much as I normally would on groceries, but it put us into a very, very strong position, you know, a week or two before the grocery shelves started emptying. Then the next indicator is how is society responding, as well as, you know, at this point, we had a good sense of what the disease was. How were people responding to it? And in, it was really clear the panic buying was going to be kicking in. Uh, the toilet paper was the first one. And so when that went, uh, I was kind of keeping an eye on things. And I think it was somebody had just posted on social media a picture from local shelves that were like emptied of the, I would say, more the panic buying item. And that's when I pulled our last trigger. Is, is there a known psychology to why folks go to toilet paper? As opposed to, you know, kind of something else. I mean, water is obvious, but, you know, kind of toilet paper. I don't know. That one has confused me greatly. (laughs) My wife and I were talking about that. It's like, why toilet paper? And she came back with a big thing of toilet paper. It was like, well, I was at Target and everybody had it. So I I got it too. Yeah. I think that there is a psychological thing, which is where when you perceive scarcity, you will become desperate for that particular item. I mean, just watch kids. Same thing, like, oh my God, I better get that last cookie before somebody else does. And so I think it's that that psychological piece of it caused people to buy more. And, you know, without fully understanding the the impact of a pandemic, because in my head, I'm looking at what's going on in China, and there were slowdowns, certainly, but their supply chains stayed up for the most part. There were, people weren't starving in their homes, like restaurants were still doing food delivery. There was grocery delivery. There was the ability to get the essentials you needed, uh, at least the non-medical essentials. So um, that one didn't worry me too much, but I'm also glad that, you know, we already had a bunch of extra toilet paper. Yeah, we do too now. Yeah. So I'm good. <laughs> I'm good on that. So so with that, 
why don't we kind of take a, a little bit of a break, you know, kind of um, thank our sponsor, Disrupt Ops. We forgot to mention them uh, up front, or I forgot to mention them uh, up front, but Disrupt Ops, you know, cloud security uh, operations, uh, obviously the the firm that uh, both Rich and I are, are involved in, uh, but they are the sponsor, so we want to thank them for uh, sponsoring our pandemic version uh, of the Cloud Security uh, Mindset uh, podcast. So with that, Rich, let's uh, keep going on because, you know, normally we would break these up into, you know, kind of yeah. two episodes. But um, given the timeliness of this information, I don't know that that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Um, so let's, you know, kind of, I, I think, keep going and, and really talk uh, a little bit less about, you know, kind of toilet paper uh, and, and more about, you know, both practices in and potentially outside of your house uh, and really how we can apply some of these lessons to our day job, right? This will pass. Uh, hopefully it's, you know, within weeks, not months, but at some point, you know, kind of we'll get to uh, the point where our nod is, is less than one and we start to, you know, kind of uh, ebb away uh, relative to the number of, of new uh, infections and, and hopefully, you know, with the uh, the death rate uh, being somewhat minimized, uh, but we will go back to work at some point. Um, and, you know, I do want to make sure that we can apply some of those uh, lessons there. But, but first, again, given kind of your experience, uh, you know, kind of dealing with uh, a lot of these things, you know, are the fears overblown? Should folks be going to restaurants? You know, you talked about getting food delivery in China. Is that safe? You know, if folks are going to a restaurant, picking up stuff to go. So, so where's your kind of general yeah. line again i think being a little bit more educated than uh than the typical person we are at a near worst case scenario without question we have a highly infectious disease that is infectious for days or weeks before somebody knows that they're a carrier that has a high mortality rate right now the lowest mortality rate i think i saw this morning was 0.77 percent in some parts of italy and i hate to break it to americans they have more per capita capacity than we do with variations for state by state differences. This is that bad. And me and my family, my wife and my children are fine. My parents, my wife's parents, anybody over the age of 60, definitively anybody over the age of 70 or 80, you know, this is going to be bad. I don't think people realize, but I think it's like a 15% mortality you know, over the age of 70 or 80, I can't remember which one offhand. It's, a, it's over 80. It, it's 15% at this point, which, you know, having, having a 91-year-old uh, stepfather, it, it scares the crap out of me. It's a high number. And what's not included in that number, so some people are like, oh, it's only 80%, you know, 20% have mild, uh, or 80% of mild symptoms. They do, but in those age groups, it's not just the mortality rate, it is the hospitalization rate. And... There is a correlation between those, and this is what people, I think some people are missing, which is that as the sickest patients fill up, we run out of ventilators, we run out of ICU beds as responders get sick. So this is a complex cascading system failure that we are facing right now. And the word coming out of Italy, we're seeing that in action. China, they contained it to an area and surged in tens of thousands of people yeah, 10 yeah i heard ten thousand doctors yeah over fifty thousand responders is what i read someplace i don't know how true that is but that was the number i heard were pushed in our national disaster medicine system isn't a fraction of that it's not even i mean it's a tiny fraction of that uh add the public health service maybe we're a little bit better but we only have thousands and the problem is is if it hits every place you can't surge resources to where they are needed. I'm an exception. I'm probably one of the only paramedics in the National Disaster Medicine System who is, you know, young and healthy and is not working for an EMS agency currently, which means that if I go, it affects our work. And we'll talk about, you know, the preparations for that piece of it. And it affects my family, but I'm not taking away a local resource. But if things get bad all across the country, how do we send doctors from Arizona to, to Ohio if Ohio's all jacked up? I mean, we, we lose the ability. What actually doesn't look like Ohio will be more, more proactive than anybody else. It's, you know, other places in, in the South, Florida, you know, with yep. their kind of demographics that you really start to. 
Yeah, I mean, and, you know, so the question becomes, can we move resources around? Uh, I can tell you that some of our disaster scenarios, like I've done training exercises where we worked with the military and we loaded up patients in, you know, Colorado on a C-130s and flew them to Texas or wherever else where there was more resources. Uh, we potentially lose the ability to do those kind of activities, which is what the U.S. system relies on for most disasters in a pandemic if it spreads everywhere. So it is our civic duty to stay in our darn houses. It is our civic duty to keep that separation. My kids really want to go to dance classes and there are other things and we're, we're cutting that off. We're yeah. not going to take those risks because I, you know, if they get sick, it's fine. Like this is not bad for kids. My wife and I get sick. I don't want the flu, but that's fine. I'll, I'll get through it. We're, we're super healthy, but we don't want to be taking resources. We don't want to be spreading it to others because we'll be infectious for a week or two before we know any better. So the isolation matters. Uh, that that's right. And, and you, you know, you, you see some things, you know, I know somebody who, who drove past, uh, you know, kind of a house of worship over the weekend and it was packed and you're just scratching your head going, I mean, listen, I understand, you know, everybody's scared. So, so they want to get a little bit closer to uh, a higher power. Um, but if one person has it, almost everybody in that space is going to have it right. And, and, you know, you're shaking hands, you're hugging, you're doing all of that other stuff. And then you hear about the folks on, on Saturday night, you know, kind of partying it up in, in all the bars and, and you just, again, shake your head and, and go, yeah, millennial, it's not about you. Right. But it, it's, it's really about everybody else. And, um, again, I, I kind of just echo those thoughts, you know, we're, we're keeping all of our kids in the house and, you know, again, they're in high school. Um, so that, you know, kind of creates some issues because they can certainly tell you how dissatisfied they are. And if you're not careful, go grab the car and, and go somewhere. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a real imposition for everybody, but we, we viewed it just, you know, from a, a standpoint of, I think you, you put it correctly, right? Civic duty. It's our duty to not make this problem worse as uncomfortable as it is. Well, and it's my duty to stay healthy as a responder. I mean, my skills will be needed. So uh, I actually turned down going on deployment today. I would be leaving actually tomorrow or Wednesday is when I would have been leaving uh, to because I if I can get things settled at work and at home, I'm freer to go on deployments later, uh, which we're we're now just assuming. And I may not end up deploying. I may end up, you know, working at a local ER just saying, hey, do you guys need a hand, uh, you know, is needed like it's it, it, we have a responder responsibility. We, we have to keep ourselves in service and that's a, a real critical thing that we keep and keeping myself in service. Isn't just me being healthy. It's making sure my family is taken care of. It's making sure that I will not bankrupt myself in the process. These are legitimate concerns and that we have to deal with. Uh, some of my friends, I, I was chatting with one this morning. He's been on deployment for over a month now. And we have job protection, but there's cascading impacts. One is I don't have job protection. You know, I mean, you're not going to fire me, but if I'm not working, <laughs> I don't make money. Like I have zero income if, uh, if I'm out on the road too much. And when I went to uh, Puerto Rico, you know, for three weeks, I mean, that impacted things that, that hit my bottom line. There's no job protection for that. You know, a key part of preparedness is start with yourselves you and yours and that's not selfish you can't be good to anybody else if you're not coming from a position of strength and then for non-responders like you the next circle is your kind of extended family i have family members i know have not prepared and don't have stocked food and and whatever else and so it's our assumption that we will have to fill in uh, with them now food will still be available but certain kinds of supplies, or if somebody has to be quarantined. So our preparation there is we do food deliveries. That's me calling my mom who actually has prepared and saying, Hey, would you be willing to try HelloFresh for at least now that's still up and running and I can do a meal delivery service. So they don't feel like they have to go out to a restaurant because they've been eating the same pasta for every night. So there's a, it's a kind of like a, a siege mentality you have to get into and you have to prepare for scarcity. And you have to prepare for the mental aspects of this as well with yourself and with your families. And for me in response, for whatever reason, that's one aspect of it I've always been good at. 
you can throw me out for a few weeks in the middle of a, I really have always loved working in austere environments. That's, that's what we call it in the industry. So working out of the tents and, and it's almost a stoicism. And I don't mean a generic stoicism. I mean the, the true concept of stoicism, which is the, you know, you start learning how to live moment by moment in those environments. And I can, you know, Puerto Rico is probably the best one of those. And, and also Katrina, which are the two largest deployments I've been on. So, so let, let's talk about Puerto Rico for a sec, right? Because, yeah. you, you know, as, as you had mentioned, Rich, uh, you know, clearly we're, again, hopefully this is wrong, but I don't see how, you know, kind of it, it, it does end up, you know, kind of not going down where we kind of outstrip the capacity for emergency medicine. And, you, you know, you mentioned that, that you worked, you know, kind of in a, a pop-up, right, a, a tent uh, type of uh, environment, uh, you know, during the Puerto Rico uh, situation. So so what was that like? Did they have the right resources? You, you know, what what can we glean from some of that experience that you had, both, both right and wrong, right? You know, what needed to be done better? Uh, and, you know, what are the odds that that's actually going to happen, you know, kind of here on the mainland, you know, when things really start to, to go yeah, so Puerto Rico was interesting because it was, uh, in many ways, uh, similar and, and worse than what we're doing now, but in a, a smaller environment. The The response, obviously, was mishandled to some degree, and I, I'm going to fully stay out of that because, you know, I have to be, be cautious about the kinds of things that I say. Uh, the My personal experience was a lot of time getting to a good mission, and then once I got there you know, doing good work under those austere conditions. Now I lucked out a little bit. So where we ended up was at a large regional, uh, regional hospital that was actually very well prepared. So it was a, a relatively modern facility. They had generators because of the, you know, Puerto Rico had such unreliable power at that time to begin with this place's generators stayed up. So, uh, they still had air conditioning. They still had running water. They still had their patient load. But what happened in that case was a surge because they were the only hospital in that region of the country and not just hospital, the only hospital, the only clinic, the only doctor's office that had consistent power and was able to handle, you know, any of these more severe cases. And normally our mission is we're portable emergency rooms. We set up our tents, we do triage and patient intake. We have some basic decontamination kinds of capabilities, those sorts of things. And in this case, they used us as, uh, and we call that the front end of the hospital. And the term we use is decompression. So our primary mission is emergency room decompression. Let's take the load, the compression off that emergency room. And we switch to ICU decompression. And a lot of people don't realize it, but there is a m massive difference between an emergency room doctor and a critical care doctor, between an emergency room paramedic and a critical care paramedic. The emergency room stuff, like the blood in the guts and the frontline illnesses, and you got your patients for a few hours and you're done. The treatments you use for somebody in an intensive care unit are dramatically different and take massively more larger amounts of resources, more of everything. And ICUs are the really tricky cases. And that's one of the things that's scary about COVID-19 is that COVID is creating more ICU patients. In particular, it's creating ventilator patients. And you've probably seen, I've been on Twitter, some people are like, hey, let's hack together some ventilators, you know, put a BVM in, you know, in a, in a little robot box that squeezes it and does some measurements. Like that, that's not what you need. Like that really doesn't, like there's incredible complexity to those things and in medication management. And I mean, these are really intense situations. Uh, so I learned an incredible amount about critical care to the point of I, I've since gone on and done some uh, online training for uh, flight paramedic and critical care paramedic. I haven't taken the test yet uh, and ventilator management and those pieces because I, I became mentally fascinated. But so that that experience, that piece of it is what I think we can extend into what we're going to be facing here. And and some of this little stuff like can you feed your people? Uh, how do you get the supplies there? Do you have enough of the emergency supplies? We know already from public reports, nothing, you know, none of the private stuff that I know that, you know, there's going to be shortages on gowns and face masks, which means responders are going to be more likely to get sick and spread the illness to others. So it, it's that scarcity of resources and disasters that is such a big deal. And the question is, is how quickly can we manage that scarcity? How quickly can we, 
you know, deal with it. And that's why this whole spreading the curve concept. Oh my God. It's just such a big deal. Like I, so stay in your house. Yeah. This is not a bad season of the flu. The numbers don't all support this being a near worst case scenario. Yeah. Not, not a hell of a lot more to, to be said uh, about that. That's uh, again, very, very helpful, useful, scary, right? Scary. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think that this is the kind of conversation we have to have, right? These is the kind of information that we need in order to create the urgency to, you know, get ready. And it's probably too late in a lot of reasons and for a lot of reasons uh, from that standpoint, but at least, uh, you know, try to uh, keep pace to to the greatest degree possible. So, um, Again, as I kind of mentioned earlier on, uh, we will get through this in some way, shape, or form. Um, again, maybe a couple weeks, maybe a couple months, maybe a bunch of months. I mean, nobody knows at that point. But we're all going to kind of go back to our, you know, kind of day-to-day existence, hopefully a little bit smarter, a little bit wiser uh, from the standpoint of, of a lot of these preparations. But, you know, what are some of these things that you can take back to the job, especially if, if folks are uh, kind of in, in a response function or, or, or a planning function or an architecture function? You know, what, what are the things that we must learn from this experience? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some, some clear lessons. Uh, before we jump into that, I want to do one quick aside, which is there are additional key indicators for the future that, that we're watching right now. We don't know what the exact infectiousness rate or not is here in the U.S. We don't know what the mortality rate is going to be. We don't know if the season will affect it um, because, you know, as it does the flu and it reduces as it gets warmer. So maybe here in Arizona, things will be better off. We don't know yet. We don't know if you can reinfect, uh, how long immunity is conveyed, and if we're going to have a big surge in the fall. And we don't know how quickly treatments and vaccines. Now, there's some early vaccine studies, but again, it can take it will take 12 to 18 months to mass produce a vaccine versus what they can do in a study. Uh, and the government still has a very large role to play here. So, uh, politics aside, I really hope people kind of kind of do what needs to be done um, because that can have a, a very large impact. Now, in terms of what to take away, disaster planning is just kind of something that you don't need to be a prepper, and we disparage that. We there's the silly prepper shows. There's the crazies. There's the people that run out and buy guns. Um, I mean, one of the, you know, Brandy who we work with, he joked, he's like, Oh, well, you know, I got ammo. I can get everything else. Um, he wasn't being serious, but you know, that that's the mindset people think. And here's the thing about it. It all starts with threat and risk modeling. What is going to matter to you? And there's the disaster planning versus the incident response planning. And here's the difference. A disaster is when local resources are exceeded. The local ability to respond is exceeded. Is a a paramedic, we have a a concept called, and EMTs have this, a mass casualty incident. And what's a mass, how many patients people ask in when they first go through training, how many patients, you know, do you have to have before it's an MCI, mass casualty incident? And the answer is, is one more than you can take care of. So it could be one, it could be three, it could be five. Uh, I've shown up on car wrecks or multi-vehicle accidents, and it was an MCI right then and there. The difference between a mass casualty like that and a full-on disaster, well, it's the similarity. It is, when does it exceed your capacity to respond? And so in day-to-day incident response, there's the stuff we always do. That's me on the ambulance or somebody on the fire truck. It's the call. You go, you run it, you do your job, you drop them off at the hospital, you put the fire out, you move on to the next one, you're fine. You don't need to call for additional resources. But you always need the plan for when you do need to call for additional resources, when you do run out of your capacity. And that's the same for disaster management as it is for a paramedic showing up on a car wreck with five patients as it is for an incident response team who realizes they're under assault and they simply don't have the resources to be able to respond. And so it's understanding and in your planning, making sure you always have your plans for when those resources are exceeded, I think is probably the first lesson. Yeah, that's, I mean, 
We, we kind of don't think about that enough, right? You know, kind of you don't realize that at some point resources are constrained. I mean, I guess, you know, everybody only has X number of responders, um, you know, Y, y number of, of uh, you know, tools uh, with, you know, X number of things that they have to, to worry about. But you usually don't go through that math to say, wow, you know, kind of if th- this thing spins out of control, uh, I could... Uh, you know, kind of run, run, run out of space uh, pretty quickly. Um, so how, how much does, you know, kind of architecture help with that? I mean, obviously, a lot of the stuff that we talk about relative to cloud uh, gets back to, you know, kind of smart architecture up front, you know, kind of creating both space as well as the capabilities to Im- improve operations there. Can, can we take some lessons uh, from, you know, kind of what, what we're learning and not necessarily pandemic, but, you know, kind of just uh, in terms of the architecture of the system uh, that will help uh, again if you get into a situation where where all hell breaks. Yeah, and uh, you know this is where you know we we talk about architecture and automation. I mean, I think those are the keys. Uh, the key things that can help are like infrastructure as code. You can get more resources if you can move to a different environment, or if you can quarantine or shut something down. Having those backup plans, having the alternative places, also accepting sometimes downtime is an option. Securus's website goes down, like it's not going to kill us. You know, there's, there's, you need to know when it is and when it isn't an option. And this is triage. It's, uh, so I'll give you a story. I was at, uh, respond to Katrina. We, uh, I flew down there. I, I split a hotel room with some FEMA guy. Like nobody could get hotel rooms as responders. And, you know, showing up at the airport in the middle of the night because my team was out of Colorado and I was coming from Arizona and, uh, I had actually beaten the rest of the team. Then we get our vans and we start driving out. We're headed into, uh, so this was, we were a second wave of responders, not the primary responders, but still pretty early uh, into what was going on with Katrina. And we got sent to, uh, we were going to New Orleans uh, and then they turned us around halfway. They barely got us a text message uh, and we got turned back around because there were all these buses coming out of New Orleans that were being sent to Houston and Houston was going to be over overwhelmed as the resources were, were being shifted around. So we show up at re we show up in Houston and we send some people out to scout a site where they're going to do triage and communications went down. So this is a key thing. You have to have multiple communications channels and we lost all of ours. The radios wouldn't work at that distance. Cell phones were down and we only had one satellite phone for the entire team. And so we couldn't get a hold of these people. And, uh, I would, was helping our main security officer, uh, who is a police officer, uh, because of my security background. I have a physical security background as well. And, uh, so I got put in a car with a local cop, got driven out to where these people were supposed to be. And there's piles of buses. And over the next three hours, seven of us triage 900 patients. Um, there was a conference presentation on this. It had never been done before. And it was all a matter of how quickly can you figure out what matters And so as your resources get overwhelmed, as you're dealing with these larger incidents, you need to understand your capacity. You need to understand where you can get more help. And then once you can't, then you have to do triage. In uh, emergency medicine, we use a system called START, simple triage and rapid transport that we're all deeply trained on. And with START, we only look for three things. Does the patient have a radial pulse? And are they bleeding or sorry, are they breathing? And, you know, are there basically, are they conscious? And if any of those is no, you just move on. Even if it's a salvageable patient, you, you leave them. You, you don't treat them because you have to focus on where you can make a difference. And this is what's happening in Italy now is they're trying to deal with figuring out who gets ventilators and, and who doesn't get ventilators. And in our incident response, we need to do the same thing. So we need to know what are the priorities? What are the ones that matter? What is our plan to determine which systems stay up and which don't, which systems get remediated and which don't, which business units can be shut down? Because we're not talking run-of-the-mill incident response. We're talking about the worst of the worst. And this is that thought process you need to go into. That's right. And and, and I would kind of sum it up with just, you know, kind of a, a, another plea for planning 
right? And again, stuff happens and we know that things are going on within business IT. We know that, you know, kind of projects just take flight without uh, nary a care uh, relative to, you know, kind of what the, the central structure is going to be. Uh, but, you know, we'll just get put, put another, you know, kind of point in there for the importance of planning, of having these discussions ahead of time. So at least you have some measure of, of concept of, of how you're going to behave uh, if it really does go south well so. and, and have a system like that's what we do we have these systems we have these algorithms is what we use and uh one of the unique things about paramedics is we're what's known as physician extenders and i think paramedics and pas may be the only two where we run understanding orders but make our own decisions in the field and to whatever degree is different and so we have these i have these algorithms i have to memorize all right if it's a shortness of breath here's my treatment pathway if it's my whatever, here's a treatment pathway. And it, it relies extensively on my assessment. I can call in to deviate. I make decisions based on how the patient is presenting it at any given point in time. And for triage, you know, we have a system to do it. And we have made those decisions ahead of time and we drill on them and we train on them. Because if I have to think about it too much, I'm done for. Now, sometimes I forget some of the ins and outs of start of uh, the, the, for the, the mass casualty stuff. I, I know how the whole system works. Sometimes I, I actually forget some of the criteria, but that's okay because I have a little card with it because checklists are important. Don't rely on full memorization uh, of everything. Uh, and there's more and more use of, of checklist actually in emergency medicine. We used to scoff at it. But uh, you know, another example, if I'm going to intubate a patient and they're not basically already unconscious, I have to do what's known as an RSI, a rapid sequence intubation. And depending on where I'm working, that involves sedation and paralytics. So we're paralyzing them. They can't breathe. Clearly, I want to have a checklist so I don't forget any of the steps. Like if I paralyze somebody and forget to give them a sedative, they're going to be awake and paralyzed. If I don't plan for not being able to get the intubation, because intubation can be hard, what's my backup airway? Do I have to go to a cricothyrotomy? Do, do I actually cut their neck open and stick a tube in it? I mean, those are all the things that have to be planned for, and you have to have those sequence checklists. So that's another lesson I think we can take for these situations. Great. Well, thank you, Rich. Want to before we kind of cut off uh, and and wrap this up. Uh, thanks to our pals at Disrupt Ops, which is basically us, uh, who are sponsoring the uh, Cloud Security Mindset uh, podcast. Again, you know, disruptops.com. Uh, learn all about uh, cloud security operations and how to scale up uh, your security, leveraging uh, an automation platform. Um, any parting shots, Rich, that you wanted to, and again, reiterate for everybody? I want people to understand that this, you have to assume this is going to go on for months. I think we may, it is very reasonable to expect that we may be under these pandemic circumstances, you know, easily through the end of the summer. And there could be a resurgence in the fall. And I'm not saying that to be paranoid or to scare people. Uh, I had said something on, on Twitter. One of our friends came back, stop trying to panic people. I go, no, no, people need to know that it will get worse and it will be continue. And for those of us IT professionals, we have to plan our continuity of operations under these circumstances. Uh, now, it's kind of easy for us at Disrupt Ops and Securosis. We're distributed organizations. We don't have to worry about data centers, but, but some of you will. And the things that I would be doing in your shoes is planning, not just cleaning uh, the facilities, keep people at home as much as possible, having on-premise shift rotations. So never have the two, you know, if you have only two people that know how to solve problem X, Make sure they are never working together. Uh, educate your employees on self-isolation to the best of their ability. The social distancing does make a difference. Um, have you know you you have to have your plans to keep things up and running when travel is shut down. When you know we I just saw now I got a news alert that the the president said people shouldn't be together in groups of more than ten. And uh, so well, at least it's not a hoax anymore. Oh, yeah. did I say that out loud? Uh, yeah, well, you know, and he'll take credit for it all, but. The um, So it really, really is important at this point in time. Think about everything I said about how I have these triggers and these key indicators and these planning things. And, you know, my family's in great shape right now. I got to do two weeks of work on a big project that we're on to financially set myself up safe. And then I can go deploy, uh, you know, and just do lower levels of work while I'm on the road. The rest of you, you know, for your own organizations, 
this is time to engage continuity of operations plans. This is time to separate the executives. This is time to make sure your key people can get to the facilities that they need to, to go work at home as much as possible. Because, you know, we are, if we're wrong, that is awesome. I am ecstatic because I get to go on my Disney cruise that's pretty much canceled. I, my kids get to go back to their stuff. I get to go back to my life. I don't have to spend, you know, weeks sleeping in tents or on a floor someplace, which is what I do. Uh, you know, it, I'm not going to complain. Uh, I'm not excited. You know, we get a little anxious and kind of we want to do our jobs. But in the end, I know that it's better for me to be here with my family. And I'm incredibly happy if we don't have to do any of this. But right now, with everything in front of us, with everything I see, we have to plan for us to be following the paths of Italy and of China and of every place else and understanding what that's going, what the impact is going to be and that it's going to be a, for a period of months. Anyway, I probably belabored that point too much because you were closing <laughs> the show out. I don't think you can. I don't yeah. think you can. But why, why, why don't you lead us out, Rich, since uh, that's usually your... Yeah, well, we thank everybody for joining us for this week's special episode of the Cloud Security Mindset Podcast. As Mike said in the beginning, we did not plan on doing this. Uh, we had always had a thought, hey, maybe in two years of this, we'll interview each other and and do something along the lines. But, you know, hopefully th- this thinking helps. And if you have questions, you know, hit me up on Twitter or Mogul. Hit me up on email if you have specific questions about your preparedness. Uh, please don't ask me for medical advice, though. Um, you know, like the guy that's been sending me his EKGs over Twitter. Uh, I keep saying I'm not your doctor, man. It's yeah, don't do that. So and, uh, and good luck, everyone. And, uh, stay safe. you know, everybody. Uh, stays. Yeah, stay safe. <laughs>